Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We have come as far as verse 11. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. One of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. Anyone in need of a Bible? It's, it's very important what we do here as we study the Word of God. We go line by line, verse by verse. We read the Word of God, okay? It's very important to have the words in front of you, to follow along. If you read it and hear it, you are 70% more likely to remember it. Certainly, we know with the Holy Spirit and the moving of the Holy Spirit, it's 100% because it'll get written on the tablets of your heart. But my encouragement is have the Word of God in front of you, okay? Please. Um, again, if anybody needs that, raise your hand and somebody will bring that to you, okay? Well, we've been going through chapter 17 here, and last week the Lord brought us uh, through that passages where we looked at the, the offenses and stumbling and some of the things that would call uh, the Christian, the disciple in Christ, things that they may face. Um, and really, if we're looking at, I think, uh, God's very matter-of-fact, gra- very grammatically accurate always, um, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I think something that we all have prayed and continue to pray in our lives. And strikingly, Jesus comes back and said, that's not the problem, men. That's not the problem, you know, apostles 18. It has everything to do with obedience. And with obedience, your faith then increases. When you step in obedience, He's giving us an order operation here. He will increase our faith, but he says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you know how small that is? It's in your herb garden, very small, okay? And he's saying, if you have that kind of faith, you have what it takes to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, that's a great word from our Lord. I need to hear that because sometimes it can, things can seem overwhelming or difficult, can't they? And, and, and you know, always wanting to be uh, faithful. Faithfulness is so important to the Lord. And, and as we pursue, as we walk actively in this Christian faith, in our walk, step by step, faith by faith that way, without obedience, we are not really giving a proper testimony. We're not properly giving glory and honor to God. And often we can get paralyzed. I, I'm speaking of myself because I want to, I want to do these things diligently. I, I want to honor the Lord. But sometimes, boy, it can be real difficult because I start thinking, well, okay, I'm going to make a mistake. I don't want, and next thing you know, what is it, uh, per, you know, analysis, paralysis, paralysis, analysis, something like that. And you just, you get frozen. And, and the Lord, we just sang about this morning. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. We have grace. We have liberty, love. It's wonderful to be a believer of Jesus Christ. And if we walk in obedience, we watch as the storms come and God increases our faith and we're not shaken. We're not moved off that solid ground, the rock, right? The rock of Jesus Christ. And so as we read that, that I hope that was a strong encouragement to all of us. Well, maybe convicting as well, a strong encouragement. Well, this morning, the Lord's going to take us in this next passage that we're going to be reading about these lepers, these men. As you know, leprosy in the Bible often refers, if not almost exclusively, uh, to sin when we look at the spiritual application of that. So we know that there's some men here. God always or almost always uses in Scripture whenever someone is going to be um, uh, dealt with in leprosy, they're always cleansed. We don't see the word healed. We see the word cleansed. I think that gives us a little 
a little application there. Certainly healing comes after that, right? Many times. But, but cleansing is initially what God will speak of. There's a cleansing there. And I think sometimes that's shocking to some of us. We may not think about that. We may not process that. But there's, I think, more than meets the eye in this passage of what God is trying to communicate to us spiritually. So let's bow our heads. We'll, we'll pray. We'll ask God's presence certainly with us. His word is open. He's going to speak to his people. Father, we come before you. We're humbled to be here, Lord Jesus Christ. As we sit under your word, under your teaching, God, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would faithfully speak to our hearts here this morning. Lord, I pray, I know there's men and women that have come in, they're tired, Lord. They're beaten down from the weak and just all that's come at them. And Lord, this is a place of respite, Lord, as they come in here, just a place where they can be just poured out and refilled here, Lord God. I pray you'd meet each and every soul here this morning, Lord. I pray that you would uh, use your word powerfully, Lord God, into your hearts. I, I believe everything you say, God, where you say it doesn't return void. I, I, I acknowledge it and believe the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, I would pray, please, wash us and cleanse us anew here this morning. You're our covering, Lord. We desire you tonight. We desire you this morning. We desire you every day, all the time, Lord. We pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. 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 So, you know, we dealt also with last week forgiveness, right? Again, very difficult, very important topics, good perspective here. So when we think about cleansing, the idea of sin, what's one of the things that we often think about when we think about sin is forgiveness, repentance, right? And then being cleansed, restored. And then healed or made whole that way. Sort of an order operation, if I can say it. So would you please look at with me verse 11 in chapter 17. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Okay, this is his final, very important in scripture, his final track in some four plus weeks from crucifixion, okay, from the suffering, from all that's going to happen, and certainly the resurrection. He's making this last passage through Samaria that way. This is the, the final days, if I can say it, weeks that way, and through Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. Now, we think of leprosy today, we use Hansen's disease. You probably know it better by that term. It's truly an uncurable disease. We have ways to uh, make it dormant today with uh, pharmacia or medicine, but it's, it's not something that we would think of as truly curable. It's, it's putting it sort of uh, dormant in the blood, uh, much like we can with you know, Lyme's disease or chickenpox. It's, it's in your system. And some of us, some of you, maybe uh, later on in life have had um, shingles, which is basically chickenpox. That's that virus, that same virus in your blood that's come out maybe when there's <clears throat> a challenge to your immune system or, or something like that, stress. A lot of things can cause it. But, but anyway, the idea here is, is it's still an uncurable disease even to this day. Now, when you read scripture, okay, and you look back at 2 Kings chapter 5, if you're taking notes, we see two different times, particularly, particular, I should say, Elisha the prophet went and healed 
one of the men, he told him to go. The Lord heals, obviously, cleansed him, okay, was Naaman, a man that was struck with leprosy. And you remember when Elisha told him to go back into the water and dip, and he just thought that was the dumbest thing, if I can say it any other. He thought that was the most foolish thing that you could do. And yet, God's ways, and we learn, Scripture tells us many times, are foolishness to men and women, aren't they? Um, but they're perfect in the Lord. The other one we see of, uh, you remember, even earlier back, was Numbers chapter 12. Do you remember who that was? Uh, Miriam, right? Moses' sister. Do you remember she was struck leprous as well? And Moses pleaded on her account to the Lord for healing, but still all of the nation of Israel had to pause because she had to go out of the camp because she was unclean for what? I think it was seven days, you be Bereans. And then she came back in because she was then healed, you know, cleansed and then healed by the Lord. But there was a sin issue there. Do you remember what the sin issue was? And oh, by the way, Miriam wasn't alone in that. If we're being accurate, who else was right next to her side? Aaron. Aaron and Miriam, and both were doing what? They were presuming upon God by presuming upon God's anointed, Moses. And they were saying, Moses, you take too much upon yourself that way, okay? And they had begun to challenge. And, and so we see in Scripture that God has clearly called out that there is a way and, and, and a, a process, if I can say it that way, uh, a ritual, I, I don't like to use those terms, where once you were cleansed, you were to go and present yourself to the priest so you could be examined. Because again, there was no cure. And if you've ever seen um, someone leprous or a leprous colony, uh, it's, it's tragic because once you are identified as uh, with Hansen's disease or leprous, you are removed from your family. You're removed from all those around you that way. In Israel, that's how it was done. They were to, to leave and they would have these camps, these areas. And this, I don't want to describe it, but the stench from rotting skin and things, the nose, the parts of skin dying. It was, it was quite a foul smell. And you could just start to let the video run and they would have to yell, well, say unclean, unclean, as they would walk in anywhere near a crowd. They were not to go into a crowd, but anyone near, near a crowd. So please take for a moment as this passage in chapter 17 and the next passage we're going to read, I want us to put on the Jewish mind for a moment. I want us to put on a Jewish mind to understand what it would have been like in that first century as Jesus is reading about this. They would have read and said that they met 10 men who were lepers, okay? This incurable disease. Everybody's listening. Oh my, they got what? They got COVID? You know, the people are, their ears are tuned up. What? What's going on? Okay, they're listening who stood afar off, not surprised by that, right? Uh, because they were unclean, they were put in isolation. Please notice that. Biblically, all the time we read, when there's someone sick, they're isolated. Not society is isolated, they're isolated. Please notice that in your scriptures as well. Just saying, just an extra two cents there. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master. So here's what they acknowledge. They acknowledge him as Savior. They acknowledge him as Lord. They acknowledge who he is. Have mercy on us. Okay, so they they asked for mercy. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was, they went and they were, and underline this in scripture, what were they again? Cleanse, the very first thing that we see here. Okay, now obviously we understand the cleansing is because potentially there's a sin issue. That's what, that's what it's drawing spiritual application, that when you have a sin issue, what do you need? 
cleansing. We need cleansing, okay? That's, that's what it's drawing our attention to. And who's the one that can do the cleansing? Jesus, our what? Our master. That's what we see here. And one of them, when they saw that he was healed, so do you see what happens now? Cleansed and then healed, okay? Or you might say at the same time, but it's referred to cleansing first. He returned and with a loud voice glorified God. So what do we read here? 10%. One out of 10. Just think about that for a minute. 10 of you are together. You all cry out, Jesus, Master, Lord, have mercy on us. God cleanses and forgives. Where did the other nine go? Jesus said, go present yourselves, right, to the priest. And by the way, we take that for granted. Oh, yeah, just go present yourself to the priest, yeah. Do you know that they probably went to the priest and the priest would have been like, ah, uh, ah, uh, we don't see this every day. I, you know, they would have had to go back in Scripture. What do we do again? How do we do this? Because it, only two other times in Scriptures I've already shared with you was this brought out. This wasn't something that they were walking around going, oh, yeah, this is what we do. Put the Jewish mind on for a moment. Think about it as what it would have been as a rabbi or a priest at that time. Who did this? How did this happen? You mean to tell me you were, you, you were leprous? I, I saw you because you would have been, it would have been documented somewhere in one of the books that they were not to enter the temple. They were not to come and partake in holy feasts because they were unclean. So they would have had their name. Clearly, they would have identified who they were. Wait a minute. I know, and now you're cleansed and you're healed. Who did this? How, how did this happen? But only one of them went in return and glorified God. He fell down on his face and his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan, a Samaritan here. What's that telling us? God can cleanse everyone. Remember, they would have looked at the Samaritans. Now, at this point, hearing this with the Jewish mind, a Samaritan, a half-breed, that's the way they would have thought? What? They're not worthy. The Samaritans aren't worthy. They're half-breed people. What do you mean? Again, put on the Jewish mind. That's the way they would have thought. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? You know what this is spiritually alluding to? How many people come to Jesus because they want something? But the very thing he wants is relationship. That's why he wanted them to come back. He wanted to interact with them. He wanted to love them and know them and spend time with them, just like you and I, to press into him. But only one of the ten comes back and wants relationship. The other nine got what they wanted. They're gone. Boy, that... That convicts my heart. Why am, I, why am I a believer in Christ? Is it because I want fire insurance? Or is it because I want a Lord, a master, someone that I can surrender my life to because I know I'm blood bought and I can live after, live for. It gives purpose and meaning to my whole life, to my family's life, to your lives. What Jesus Christ has done, what God did in his creation of you and I, God has given us purpose. And when we look at through it with the eternal eyes, we begin to understand our roles, our place in this cosmic universe. When we're born again children, 
of God, everything else just makes sense. I don't know about you, but the years I went through life without that understanding, without that relationship, it was a lot of striving. It was a lot of sorrow and disappointment. It was a lot of insecurity. It was a lot of stuff. But Jesus, it doesn't become just worshiping the works of God. Even though this man came back, he glorified God, but he came back to Jesus. He wanted to be in relationship with Jesus. He's, he's wanting to be familiar with him. Family. He wasn't like, Lord, thanks. I'll see you when I need you again. Isn't that a little bit convicting when you think about that? In our relationships to the Lord, we're very quick to call out, but are we quick to rest in his arms? Rest in his word. Rest in his heart. Were there not only, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner, except this Samaritan? Again, put on the Jewish mind. This is like big. You mean only the Samaritan's the one that came back? Where, where are the children of Abraham? Where are they? And he said to him, rise and go your way. What made him well? Your faith. What did this leper have to demonstrate to begin with? Obedience, didn't he? Jesus said to him, go show yourselves to the priests. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily read this way. It says, and so it was when they went, they were cleansed. Did you catch that? So it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Not immediate. It wasn't right in that moment. Like Jesus said it and they went, oh, okay, or... Okay. No, it, 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 it required obedience. Go. Do. Believe. Follow. And then once they did that, then they recognized the Lord is moving because he already said he was, and they're just, faith is being built. And then what does Jesus say at the end, tying it all back together? Again, it goes back to last week's passage as well. What's he saying? Your faith has made you well. And it began with beautiful, simple obedience that what Jesus commands, we do. That's why we're followers of Christ, not followers of men or women for that matter. He addresses the issue there of, of, of what I would like to call lordship in Scripture. Again, everybody here wants a Savior. I believe you're here. You want a personal Savior, someone that's going to save you from hell. And, and, and eternal separation from God. Yes, we would all acknowledge that. I think the whole world, if given an opportunity, um, you know, would acknowledge they want fire insurance, right, in some situation of their lives. I'm not talking about necessarily eternity, but something of their lives. If they knew something was coming, a doomsday type deal, they would say, I don't want to be a part of that doomsday, right? But what Jesus here is alluding back to is it's not just fire insurance. It's a relationship. He is the master. And it's a privilege and a joy to be part of that relationship. Only one out of ten actually demonstrated that, actually wanted a part of that. I don't know. I'm not trying to statistically read into that. I'm not saying 10% of the church. I don't think we can make a uh, you know, a, a false brush stroke like that with the church. It's the only 10% of the church really is in desire of a relationship. The other 90% is just in 
church or a born-again believer because they want to get something out of it. I, I, I can't declare that. I don't think any of us here can. I don't think we can extrapolate that as a, as a rule or a pattern or something in Scripture. But boy, it sure is interesting. And it causes me to examine my own heart first and say, boy, what, what am I in this for? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I submit? Why do I submit to my wife in, in things? Why does she submit to me in things? It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. I do it all for Jesus. It's, it's why you do the things you do. You do it for Jesus. That's the motive, right, that belongs in our hearts. If we're doing it for any other reason, then I think we need to be honest about that because Jesus already knows. He already knows our hearts. Now, as we're going to go on to verse 20 here, I'm going to sort of pause in the line-by-line teaching here because the Lord presses on my heart with some of our time here this morning. And I I was praying. I was like, Lord, are you sure you want to do this because of of our time together? Um, You'll be happy. I made a few notes. So no squirrel, no squirrel, you know, paths here this morning. Um, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis 12. What the Lord was pressing on my heart here was when I was reading verse 20, and I think like most of us, we read these passages. But again, I, I, I've been, in chapter 17, the Lord's really been speaking to my heart about the Jewish mind. To put yourself in a first century Jewish mind of what it would have been like as a young man or a young woman to hear these things under the law with a Jewish context. Because for us, it's kind of easy to, to look back and say, well, of course, oh yeah, you know, one of those moments. I don't know, maybe that's just my, I'm going to read verse 20 and on as you are turning to Genesis 12. We'll come back and go line by line here. But I I want us to have that because I think what the Lord was showing me in, in this passage here, I believe, is the Jewish mind and the messianic expectation meet Jesus, the Messiah, and God's plan. And, and often those are two different things. I think we can all, if I could say it a simpler way, I have an idea as a son of God what I believe the Lord wants to do and how the Lord's going to do it from the reading of the scripture. But that doesn't mean that God is going to necessarily do it that exact way, right? Um, the rapture of the church. Many of us in our mind's eye have an idea of how that's going to look. We know because of reading scripture, it's going to be in a twinkling of an eye. We know we're going to be caught up, right? But in my mind's eye, I want to be high-fiving all of you on the way up because this is it. Praise the Lord. And I'm excited about that. I don't know that that's what it's going to be like. I don't know. Is it just, am I going to be sleeping? Oh, by the way, it reads like that that some can be raptured while they're actually sleeping. That would be cool, right? You, you go to bed, you're you, 9 o'clock at night, 10, 30, you know, whatever time you go to bed, you close your eyes. All right, tomorrow's a busy day. Maybe there's some obstacles in front of you. You close your eyes, you go to sleep, and next thing you know, you're up with Jesus. I don't know, do you wake up? How does that work? You're just, you're just with him, and you're, you're in the air, caught up in the air, and you're like, praise God, we're here. You know, let's do this, you know, and... And, and all right, the wedding feast of the Lamb is going to begin. And it's exciting, but I don't know. I think a lot about that. So, but please, it's so easy to criticize the Jewish man and woman or the religious leaders here. And I often pick on them. And I think just the Lord was showing me this. 
you know, Matt, go back and look at these things from Judaism, from a Jewish mindset. Understand what it would have been to be a first century Jew, looking at the promises, understanding scripture, eschatologically, what has been broken out, what does that look like, and would I have been just like one of these men? Right? Would, would I have been thinking that way? Would I have been not looking for the same thing because I would have been maybe looking in a, for some, a Messiah that would look a little different? And I thought it's worth taking some time this morning to think about that, and I think that will cause us also, fast forward, to reflect today as Christians on God's future plan as well and how that's going to impact us. And do we have a tunnel vision on that as well? So I'm just going to read our passage in verse 20, and then I'm going to share a little bit in Genesis 12. Now, as he was asked by the Pharisees, okay, that's interesting, they come to him, when the kingdom of God would come. So if you're Messiah, why would they ask that question? Well, we're going to go through that this morning in a little bit to make sense of why. That's a natural question for a Pharisee or any other Jewish person to ask. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here, look there, do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And it was as, as it was and as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted and built. But on the day that Lot went out to Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Again, a very famous saying of Jesus Christ. I tell you, in that night there will be two women in one bed, or two men, excuse me, I meant to say in one bed, and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So as we read these things, and I'm going to turn to Genesis as well, specifically Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to draw our attentions to verses 1 through 3 here, because this ties into what we know is part of the Abrahamic covenant, and hopefully we'll take a, a, a cursory uh, journey here this morning through the scriptures, and that will help us appreciate the Jewish mind, Okay. Because I truly believe to understand the complexity of the religious leader's question uh, with the simplicity that Jesus responds to that, we need to don or to put on sort of that mindset of understanding as a, a Jewish person or a teacher of that time. You know, they don't have our advantage. We have the advantage of looking back, right? But there needs to be an understanding from the reading of the Word of God as they would have read Torah because they all would have grown up reading Torah. And so 
the entire counsel of God matters. Many of us on Sundays, we come, we're in the New Testament on Sundays, but on Wednesdays, we go through the Old Testament scriptures, line by line and verse by verse. And I, I, I've invited all of you out to come to those uh, meeting times where we come for church service. It's vitally important. We should know our Old Testament scriptures because it is so foundational to understanding and having proper bearings or moorings in the New Testament. We need to understand our Old Testament, which, again, another attack on the church today is so many are saying we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We just need the New Testament only, right? That's a lie from the pit of hell. We, we need all of God's counsel. Um, I mean, themes like salvation, sanctification, end times, Messiah, right? Uh, prophetic promises of God through the prophets. They all bring us to the expectation that if I was a first century Jew, I would have been looking at it just like these religious Pharisees and men were. I would have come to a similar, I truly believe, I would have come to a similar conclusion that they had. So I just ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you recall how God chose Abram or Abraham after uh, the scattering of Babylon, and he promised to make him into a large nation that would, you know, uh, mediate divine blessing to all the nations. If you look at Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country. He was a Gentile. From your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse, those, curse him who curses you. And in all of your families, the earth shall be blessed. This was a perpetual promise. Jesus, or God himself, ratified this covenant. Abraham did not need to ratify this covenant. This is what's called the Royal Grant Covenant in Scripture. As a matter of fact, he uses the first sort of uh, anesthesia by putting Abraham out. He knocks Abraham out, and then he splits the animals, remember? And he walks through the middle of that uh, row, which would have been common in the Jewish uh, days to be able to do that, to express a covenant made in bloodshed, an agreement between two men, two women, what have you. God ratifies that. God acknowledges that, and he puts Abraham out of the picture because it's not about Abraham. Although he's going to use him, it's about God's promise to these people, God's chosen people, Israel. And this has not ever stopped. This has not failed. This is the same promise and blessing today. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. This has not Stop. This, this promise, this teaching here hasn't ended. It doesn't have an expiration date, okay? So what we see here is that he brings that. Now turn, since you're already in Genesis, turn to chapter 22. We're going to, again, take sort of a survey approach to this. Go to chapter 22, please. Uh, and let's look at verses 15 through 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, there it is again, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, remember Isaac, your only son, blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. That's a pretty big promise. In your seed, all the nations, the earth, all nations, he said, in your seed. Did you catch that? Not just the Jews, but all nations shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Did you, isn't that interesting? We're in the passage of 17, chapter 17 of Luke. What's the focus? Obedience. We see that again. You've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The promise got developed, right, as Abraham's family grew. 
right? You might remember Exodus, just for the sake of time here this morning, chapters 1 through 18. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go online, listen to the teachings that's online or the church app, download it. You can get it off the website. And all the teachings through Exodus are up there. I encourage you to listen to chapters 1 through 18. You know, it's probably 1,000 hours worth of teaching, or I don't know, 500 hours, whatever it is. But my point is, is you start to understand what God is developing here, the plan that he's presenting to us through the Holy Spirit and Scripture, which is the promise that as Abraham's family is growing, what do they end up in? Slavery, right? And then they're rescued out of slavery, and where are they brought? To Mount Sinai, okay? There at that mountain, God asked the Israelites, to obey all the terms of the covenant. If you want to look at that, turn to Exodus chapter 19, and let's look at verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. This is where he teaches them or explains to them that they are to to obey his covenant that way and to be a part of it, and that he's going to take and He's going to establish priestly representatives to all the nations. So now we understand how that's going to work. Look at uh, chapter 19. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim. And they came to the wilderness of Sinai and encamped at the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Israel, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. So this is why the Jewish people think that way. They understand that because God had told them that. For all the earth is mine, God declares that as well. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's their expectation. That's who they are. That's what they expect. That's what they think. That's their understanding. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So as we read that, right? However, if you've been with us as we've been going through Genesis, we're all the way up to uh, Second Chronicles now on Wednesdays. Again, I encourage you all to be there for this. Uh, if you're with us, it's going to all make sense, right? Because the story, as the account went on, we watched the family of Abraham fail at the task. You remember the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes? Remember that? Fast forward, God raises up David. He's a royal leader, right? And he would be faithful on behalf of an unfaithful people. Yet even David was guilty of what? Adultery and murder. So God promised that uh, this ideal leader for Israel would come from the future. And he specifically gave him what's called the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel, which refers to the future for Judah. Now it's getting more targeted. It started with Abraham, the father of all nations, right? Then he gave the covenant promise. They were looking, okay, we're a special covenant people. Then he goes forward and they blow it, so to speak, because they don't honor the covenant. They don't keep, they judges, they do what's right in their own eyes. They're failing uh, left and right. And so God raises up again a kingly, uh, you know, a young man, David, to be a king. But even David blows it. Even though he has a heart after the Lord, he blows it. So God says, there's going to come one, low David, from your line that I'm going to establish that will be a priest and the king over your dynasty 
forever. Now, if you were David and you heard that, you might have thought because he said seed, you might have thought that was going to be what? One of your sons, one of your heirs. And you would have been looking for that. Okay, so just keep going as we're going through scripture here, how you would have been looking. You're waiting. This is hundreds of years now have passed. You're still waiting for this seed, this promise that God has made to his people, but they keep blowing it. And so God has to make another way, right? God goes and makes another way because God's a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God of love. So if you've been tracking again, uh, Genesis through now 2 Kings and Chronicles, you have an advantage because you probably know the biblical prophets in the account of 2 Kings chapter 17 through 25, right? We read about the prophets, the mouthpieces of God, okay? And we can understand how they tie into the kings and the, 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 the establishment there. And then 2 Kings chapter 17 through 25, very important. It shows and demonstrates to us ultimately the downfall, the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian invasion, okay? Remember, we're reading in 2 Chronicles on Wednesday. What have we, who's even writing? Ezra, the pro, Ezra wrote that, right? Ezra, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Ezra wrote that. Who is he writing that to? After they just went through 70 years of captivity, a post-exilic people that have now just come back into the land, but two generations at least have passed by, they have no idea about their spiritual heritage. They don't know the things that we're reading because they had grown up in Babylon, and they grew up under Nebuchadnezzar, and they grew up under all of those, the, the history and the context. They didn't know. I mean, sure, they had some, as their parents probably told their kids about these things, but they weren't keeping feasts. They weren't keeping Shabbat. They weren't doing any of those things. So God brings them out of the captivity, which was promised. Daniel, remember that? Daniel brings them out, and he brings them back into the land. But they're there, and what are they doing? They're rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the temple, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and they're all coming back into the land. The people that are gathered are going, what are we doing? How is this going to work? Maybe God's given up on us. Because after all, you know, we just went to half of the 10 tribes went to Assyria. They've never come back. They become the Samaritan people. The only tribe is Judah and who? Benjamin, that's right. I heard somebody say Benjamin. That's correct. Judah and Benjamin, the only two tribes that remain who become obviously the southern kingdom that way. With the southern kingdom, as this is laid out, what ends up happening is in 17 through 25, you have the prophet Isaiah. Why is Isaiah so significant? Because much of the messianic promises that we get, much of what these religious leaders were holding on to was directly from the prophet Isaiah. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ came to earth and one of the times he went into a synagogue, he opened a scroll. What scroll was it? Isaiah. And what did he read? And he declared, before you, this has been fulfilled before your eyes. Why? Because Isaiah is incredibly prophetic from a messianic perspective. They would have understand that in the Jewish mind. This is very common to them. Us that maybe didn't grow up in a Jewish home, it's, 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 it can be foreign to us. But if you grew up with a Jewish mind, you, these are the, this is your history. You know this. This is kind of like our American history, what we know about our country and a civil war and the things that have happened here. They would have understood these things, but they would be looking at it from a mind's eye this way. Now, after the Babylonian invasion in 586, right? We understand it. Now, as you turn to Isaiah the prophet, please turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 1. And I, uh, forgive me for going as quick as I am. I just want to be sensitive to the time this morning. I'm, I'm basically trying to take a thousand years or more and, and, and condense it for us into a survey in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so here. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, As we turn to Isaiah in the book, um, which we have not as a fellowship read together yet, I, I look forward to sharing that with you. We, we need to start right at the beginning there. And, and what the Holy Spirit did just in reading that, if you've been with us on Wednesdays, by the time we're done with Second Chronicles, when I just read the vision of, vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, focused on the southern kingdoms, in the days of Uzziah, ooh, wait a minute, Uzziah? We just finished Second Chronicles, fast forward in your mind. Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, what did the prophet just do? He just took us back 150 years. By the time you finished 2 Chronicles, he literally just, Isaiah the prophet just took us back 150 years because he wants us to focus on something. Specifically, he talks about the Assyrian invasion and what was happening there in the northern kingdom. And then what else is he following up with that? He turns around and then he goes, because where did Isaiah live? He lived in Jerusalem, in southern Judah. And he was gathering and he was telling everybody, hey, this Assyrian storm is coming, right? He's convinced that the northern kingdom of Israel is done for, but he still has hope that things are going to go different for Judah and for the family that David would be ruling in, in Jerusalem. And this goes back to that key, and, and I'm just going to ask you to hold your finger in three places, right? You're still in Luke, you got your finger in Isaiah, but do me a favor, turn back to 2 Samuel 7. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7, it's all the way to your left there, chapter 7, that promise that I alluded to, that God made with his people, he promised a faithful king would come and arise and lead Israel towards faithfulness, and the king would rule over the nations forever and ever, okay? Okay. I'm just going to take a moment to read this. Very, very important. Now it came to pass that the king that was dwelling in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan, that's David he's talking about, the prophet, see now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent of curtains or tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go and do all is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Remember this is when Nathan comes and says, yeah, go ahead and build the, the temple, the house. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up, out of, up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved you in a tent or, but have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you now built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, most used title in all of Scripture for God, I took you from the sheepfold, from the following the sheep, to be rule over my people and over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of a great man who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. Now we're getting into the prophetic. Now we're getting into the promise. Now we're getting into the Jewish expectation of what they would have been holding on to. 
He says, I will in a place of my own and a move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Who was oppressing them at the time that Jesus Christ was on the earth? Rome. Since that time that I commanded judges over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will rest with your fathers and I will set up, there it is, a seat after you. Is that his next kin? Is that his next child, an heir? That's what he probably would have taken it as. Who will come from your body. What does that mean? He means from the bloodline. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house. He's not talking about Solomon here, right? It reads like he's talking about that, but there's near and a far fulfillment of this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom for what? Forever. That's very important. No man's kingdom will be forever. God's will. I will, be, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, which according to all the vision, and Nathan spoke to David. And then obviously David goes into praising and worshiping God. But just take that in for a minute. It's easy for us to read this. We're looking back. But then Assyria just got sent into captivity. Okay, that makes sense. It was just going to be Judah that God was going to do this through. But then 586 comes, and Judah also gets sent into captivity. As I mentioned, then they, 70 years later, they come back into the land post-exilic, but they don't know any of these things. Did God forget about Israel? What's God going to do? From 586, okay, 70 years, you're 510. Do you realize it's almost 500 years to the time of Jesus Christ walking the earth, roughly? I mean, 400 and something, but close enough. Do you know how long they've been waiting for Messiah to come because of the promise that we just read in 2 Samuel 7? And so there's a whole lot that, that they're expecting to be fulfilled here, right? Like, Turn to chapter, since you're Isaiah, turn to chapter 1 and let's look at verse 21 through 26. This is also going to help you when you reach out to a Jewish person to share Jesus Christ with them because you are starting to understand how they think, how they've been raised in Torah, how they study these things and what their expectation is, what they're still waiting for, they believe. It's getting into their mind, so to speak, because you're getting into the word of God and you're starting to understand some of these things from their perspective, their mind's eye. In, in, first, or in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21 through 26, how, f- how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of just. Remember, he went back 150 years. Righteous lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silvers become dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and co- companions and thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after the rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor the cause of the widow came from before them. Therefore... The Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and I will take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge you away your dross and take away all your ally. That was what God was doing. It was reconciliation, wasn't it? He was, but captivity wasn't a punishment uh, to be mean to the people of Israel. It was to do what? It was to remove the impurities. It was to refine his children, his covenant children to take away your alloy. 
I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So that's God's intention here. They are like, oh, that's good. Now, okay, they read this, the opposed exilic people. Okay, so God's not done with us. God promised he's going to purify Israel with the coming act of divine justice. And only the repentant would be redeemed, right? And then if you turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24 through 30, right? He was referring to the Assyrian empire that's going to come and, again, take out the Israelite cities everywhere. And you can look at that just Isaiah 5, 24 through 30. But he did trust, Isaiah trusted God's ancient promise to David, 2 Samuel 7. And he knew that this act would not be the final word, right? Isaiah's hope for a future ruler would be introduced in the opening chapter, again, of chapter 1, verse 26 of Isaiah. I will restore the rulers as in the beginning. We just read that. And in Jerusalem. And you will be called the city of righteousness. So God allows the southern kingdom and the family of David to go through the fire to come out the other side, purged and faithful. That's how the Jewish mind saw and understands the Babylonian captivity. They understand that now that was the purpose of that. That's what it satisfied. We're done with that now. Do you understand their mindset? We're done. We've been purged. We're faithful now. Now Messiah is coming now. Now he's ready to come because we have been refined as alloy, right? So they're thinking that way, okay? Now, if, if you look at Isaiah 7, okay, and you can, you can turn there. And as you're doing that, I'll just, you know, the ultimate goal isn't just to glorify Israel. As we read in, in, in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, it shows that God wants to restore his family back to Abraham, the, the promise that he originally made. So I, Isaiah is confronted with one of David's line, right? Ahaz, Isaiah chapter 7. He ends up being faithless as an ancestor. So Isaiah looked forward to the king who would be like David and have a radical faith to save Israel from the Assyrian threat. But that wasn't God's plan. Then we read about this one king that will come. And that's in Isaiah 9. It's a very well-known passage. As a matter of fact, many of you put it on your Christmas cards. You know, you put it on your stationery and your notes. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. This is what they're expecting. This is the mind's eye. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed 500 years later. And when at first he, he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee and the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nations and increased its joy. The rejoice and they rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. And men rejoice with them and divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff is his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning of fuel and fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, tying it back to the Davidic promise and covenant, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it, the judgment and justice from that time forward and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
So there it is. They've read this. They've studied Isaiah. That's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to come and he's going to do what? He's going to overthrow. Because when Messiah does come, this is what they're believing. He's going to overthrow the government right at that point. Who is the government when Jesus is declaring himself as Messiah? To even the religious leaders, because he did it multiple times to them. What were they expecting it to be a proof test? Or can I use the word a litmus test? that Messiah would have done right then and there to prove that he was actually Messiah. They were looking for a sign. They were just looking for the sign in the wrong place. What were they looking for? Because they said Messiah, according to Isaiah 9, is going to do what? He's going to overthrow the government. He's going to establish his kingdom forevermore. Jesus didn't do that the way they expected. Therefore, that is why the Jewish mind goes, that can't be Messiah. Here's the rub. We have to read all scripture, all of the book of Isaiah. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is going to point out here. And um, for the sake of time, I would love to take you back through the rest of Isaiah in time. But I'm going to turn us back to um, Luke 17, because that's what they're waiting for. That's what they're expecting. And specifically, what they're not taking into account is the passages in Psalm 22, which talk about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, which talks about how he has to be beaten and he's going to suffer. The the Psalm speaks about piercing. What they didn't understand, and, and look, in fairness to them, just like when Jesus was correcting the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders at the time, he was correcting their understanding of the scripture or the law because they were applying so many of these things without love. And Jesus was teaching them the fullness of love and truth in the application for proper exegesis of Scripture. The Pharisees just come to Jesus and they say to him, Now, when he's asked about the Pharisees, when is the kingdom of God would come? Jesus is sitting there and saying, It's already come. Right? It's here. There's a portion of it. But they're saying, Can't be. And what Jesus is trying to explain to them is their error in exegesis. In other words, what they believed is that God's plan was a single fold path plan. That Jesus was going to come back, or I'm sorry, excuse me, I'll use the term that they would use. Messiah is going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. What they didn't understand is that Messiah, his plan is a twofold plan. It's a twofold plan, just like for us. From an eschatological perspective, it's a twofold plan, isn't it? What's the first thing that happens to the bride of Christ? Do we go through the great tribulation? No. He said that the church isn't given unto wrath, right? First Thessalonians chapter 5. So it's a twofold plan. What's the first plan? The church is removed. We're raptured out. And then what happens? Seven years, three and a half years when the great tribulation starts, the midway, the abomination of desolation, right in the middle of that, when he desecrates the temple, the Jews turn around and realize the peace covenant that was established, it was a farce. There is no peace and security because now he's declaring himself as God. They turn around and rebel against that. Daniel, right? Daniel chapter 7, 9, okay? Even chapter 12. We, we, and we're going to get into that when we get into Daniel. He starts to, he does that. He, they reckon, oh my God, what has happened? What have we done? They cry out to Messiah, Jesus. And then what happens? First, there's a judgment that happens, right? And that judgment's poured out from the three and a half year period to the seventh year period. And had not God shortened that judgment, there would not have been a single soul that would have survived. 
That's what it reads in Revelation. But he does, and that end comes, and Jesus comes and establishes his what? His rule, his kingdom, because he goes into a temple. Wait a minute, there's no temple right now. Exactly. There has to be a rebuilt temple. Because there's a temple, first of all, that Antichrist is going to come and desecrate. And then there's a temple that Jesus is going to come into, same temple. He's going to, and he's going to turn around, and we are coming back with him. It's one eschatological or end times plan with what? Two major events in it, if you want to say there's more than two. But you get the point. It's, it's a twofold plan. It's the same thing when Jesus Christ is coming. It's a twofold plan. But just like today, there are some in the church that are called post-tribulationists. They believe it's a single-fold plan, that the church is going to go through the great tribulation, and then Jesus is going to come, and then somehow we're going to go up and down really quick, and we're going to then turn around and minister to the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial reign. They don't see it as a two-fold plan. The very same error that the Jewish people made when they were exegeting the scripture and saw it as a single plan as well. Jesus is pointing this out. That's why I said it has implications for us as born-again believers today because we can make that same mistake of having an ideology in our mind because we read something in scripture and we think, okay, this is maybe how it makes sense, but what happens when God's plan is different than what we think? We miss things, don't we? And that's exactly what happened to the Jews. So now, let's read it with that mindset. Now, when they asked him, the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, right? Not the way they're expecting, because they're expecting all, you know, full force army to come in, overthrow Rome. Where's the pomp and circumstance? They forgot that he's going to ride in lowly on a donkey. Remember those passages? Nor will they say, see here or see there, right? Do you remember in Luke, hold your finger here. Do you remember in Luke what it actually told us already? Luke, Dr. Luke brought this out through the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's, no op- there's not going to be a big pomp and circumstance to that. Go back to Luke chapter 2. It actually uses the word sign. I don't know if you caught this when we were reading this together. But Luke chapter 2, because he says that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. The way that, like, the cosmic lightning and all the things. Because remember, they didn't have light bulbs back then. They didn't have things like that. They didn't know what fireworks were, you know. So to them, lightning was like, a, you know, wow, the whole earth is being lit up. And the moon is, you know. They didn't have light the way we have light today and things we take. Look what it says in Luke chapter 2 here, okay? Look at verse 12. I'm going to back up to verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. Do you see that? It was actually the sign. It's not the observation that people were thinking. It wasn't the cosmic disturbances. It wasn't the overthrowing of Rome the way that they thought they were going to observe the, the kingdom of God coming with force that way. No, this is the sign. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. That's, I mean, to you and I, that's the Immaculate Conception. That's amazing. But that's not what they were looking for, was it? That's why he told them. It's not the observation, you think. Nor will they say, see here or see there, remember? Hey, go, did you see this over there? Wow, look over here, no. 
For indeed, the kingdom of God is with you. Some scholars, even pastors will say among you. Possible, but more, not as likely, you know, that it's among you. And what they're trying to say is that the presence of Jesus Christ internally in you is the fulfillment is possibly but I think Jesus is bringing out more here. Then he said to the disciples, he's talking to his, so he answered the Pharisees this way, but then he turns his attention back to the disciples and he said, the days will come when you will desire to see the one or see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. You, you wish you had my physical presence here then. Okay. And they will say to you, look here, look there. I would suggest to you, this could be the very days that he's talking about. How many times have we said, Jesus, I wish you would just come right now. Things have gotten really bad. And yet, are we not hearing, oh, go look over here. There's angel dust. Go look over here. There's pixie dust, you know, or, or, or follow these things or follow that thing. Or, oh, by the way, here's the new thing in Christianity. Or, oh, by the way, did you miss what's happening in Jerusalem right now? This is on the prophetic timeline. And we get so caught up. Hey, they're going to, the Temple Institute, they're rerunning up the, the mountain, you know, the, 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 to Mount Moriah this morning. They're going to set the cornerstone. And we get so caught up in those things. He says, they're going to say that in the last days. You're going to be looking at all these things. Jesus is here. Well, no, no, no. What did Jesus say? When he comes again, how how is he going to come? We're going to be caught to him. There's no reason for us to be having any eyes on the the Jesus here or something. No, we're caught up to him. That's the next thing that's going to happen prophetically in your Bibles. But how many Christians are so caught up? And and, and I'm I'm telling you, it's becoming, um, and I want to say this with all due respect, it's becoming a cult within the church where people are getting so caught up in, and I love prophecy. You're 27% of your Bible's prophecy. Love the book of Revelation. Love Daniel. Love that. But we are literally getting to the point where the church is starting to, did you see this and this and this and, and all of this is, and it's like, wait a minute, all that can happen. I don't really care if they rebuild the temple right now or not. It's, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be raptured out. Have at it. And it has nothing to do with how soon the temple's built to how soon the rapture's happened. It's not tied together. Do, do, do you understand prophetically these? But they're, I'm telling you, it's taking over the church. They're, 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 and, they're, and they're good men. They're men I respect. But they've, they've gotten into this and it's becoming almost like a cult following to some extent. And, and, and I'll tell you, you want to know how you pack a church? Have, and I love Prophecy Conference. We do that. We try to do it very biblically, very honoring. We don't get way, you know, conspiracy kind of stuff. We, we stick strip, scripturally speaking. I love Prophecy Conferences. But you want to fill a church? Have a Prophecy Weekend. You can sell tickets for $25, $50, and people from all over will travel in for those kind of events because they want to see. And yet, what does Jesus say? Remember we read it already in Luke? Wait. Be ready. Your adoption draws nigh. The rapture's coming. The very next thing that's going to happen on the biblical timeline or prophetic timeline is the rapture. So be about the work of Jesus Christ, getting people saved, discipling young men and women, serving Lord, being the hands and feet, and leave the timeline to Jesus. And we don't need to get caught up in all that because we're so distracted doing that that we're not doing what? fighting the battles in our country to get abortion overturned or to get, you know, redefinition of marriage changed back. And, you know, these things are happening. 
Do not go after them or follow them. He, he, couldn't, he forbids it. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven, and again, I understand this is describing great demonstrations of power. Under heaven also the Son of Man will be in his day. Okay, that's, that's, that's his day. What's, is, this, is that his day when he came the first time? No, he came to bring what? Salvation through the work of the cross. But the next time Jesus come, comes, he, ra- he raptures us out. But the next time he touches terra firma, he's not coming the way they expect him to come. Right? He's coming for judgment for those that have rejected him and established the kingdom. And I, I really wish we had another three hours. I could go over this, and I'm serious, in so much detail. Our scriptures have detailed this so uh, powerfully. But first he must suffer. So what Jesus goes back is he's telling them about the twofold plan here. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Step one. That's the first thing that they didn't get. They weren't understanding. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married. Uh, wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Because if you read back in Noah, uh, Genesis chapter 6, do you remember what they were doing? They were turning around and carrying on like nothing had ever changed, like nothing was different. They were marrying, they're doing it. And meanwhile, there's a man out there building an ark. Did you ever see how big that ark is? You can go to the creation museum or in that area and you can see, I mean, it's humongous. You think people might've been like, hey, Noah, what you building the ark for? You know, and, and God, certainly, I believe Noah, his sons, his sons' wives could have gotten on it. I think any of those that wanted to have gotten on that ark at that time and would have believed could have, could have escaped that judgment until that door closed. But once the door was closed, the decision was final. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. Remember what happened in the days of Lot? They were practicing all kind of lewdness, sexual morality out of off the charts, which, oh, by the way, is nothing compared to what we're doing today. Remember, they were going to rape that man, the angels. They wanted to rape the angels. The men were coming. Do you look at what the fall of, of a society? Do you know that women typically are one of the last in a society to fall in sexual morality? And do you know statistically that we are seeing women struggling with pornography very similar to the same levels that guys are? They're engaged in the same sexual immoral behavior uh, Romans talks about that. Romans chapter 1 and 2 goes into great detail. And, he, and it lists women before men when it's talking about um, lesbian and then homosexuality. It lists the women first because when a society and a woman falls, because a woman's usually less, the men fall first with the sexual morality, and then usually the women fall. If you study history, you kind of see that, that, that kind of pattern happen. And look at today what we see. And now it's gone a step further of transgender and changing identities and all, you know, trying to do all these things. We have taken it to another degree beyond even what Sodom and Gomorrah had taken it to. And he said it would be like those days. That's what he tells us. They ate, they drank, they brought, they sold, they planted and built. But on the day Lot went out of Sodom, it rained uh, fire and brimstone from heaven. He describes what it's going to be like. And he destroyed them all. Even so will be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who's in a housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. None of those things are going to matter. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Right? Remember Lot's wife. She, in this case, is listed as a bad example. What did Lot's wife do? She took and looked back. 
there was an entanglement with the world for her. She took and looked back, and that's all it took. There's not going to be time for that. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in the night there will be two... Now please, this is not... It's in italics. Do you see that in your Bible? This is written in by men. This is not in the original manuscripts. Do you see how it says men in italics? It reads two in one bed. I have... This is where some people have taken and tried to take a homosexuality perversion to this passage and say, see, even in the last day, they know it's going to be. So God knew that. No, that's not what this is saying. This is not saying it like this. These, these texts are speaking of rapture texts. Obviously, this is a second coming and a rapture text. Rapture first and then a second coming. He says, I tell you in the night there will be two in one bed. That could be a husband and wife. It could be a brother and a brother. We don't know, right? But it just says two. We've added men in one bed. Then one will be taken and the other will be left. So the rapture can happen maybe while someone's what? Sleeping. One will be taken, one won't. They'll wake up in the morning and the husband will be there or the wife will be there. But the husband won't be and she'll never see him again. He'll never see him again unless she gets saved. Or a brother or a sister that way. Two women, again, women are what? Italicized, added. This is added in. We'll be grinding together. That's working. So two people will be working. We have two people sleeping. Now we have two people working. The one will be taking the other left. So you'll be, you know, working, whatever you're doing. You're on the factory floor. You're doing whatever you're doing. Boom. One's gone. I don't know if it'll be a boom, by the way. It's a trumpet. Okay, I get it. Uh, huh? You know, whatever the trumpet sound is, right? One gone, one there, right? And the other left. Two men will be in the field. Again, men italicized. Okay? One will be taken, the other left. What this is speaking about is a worldwide rapture. It's not regionalized. It's not just a certain group of people. This is going to be worldwide. He's talking about whether they're sleeping in beds because it could, they're on the other side of the continent where it's nighttime compared to being on another side of the continent when it's day and people are working. This is going to be a worldwide rapture and people are going to think everything's good until suddenly one person next to them is gone, raptured out, and the other person's still there and they're going to, what? So much so that I think even the spouse or even certain people are going to be surprised by this because maybe they've played church or played Christian, or maybe they've gone through the motions. Again, it's going to get far worse than it is right now. It's going to be more difficult for those that have to go through the great tribulation and get saved and martyred compared to those that are saved and raptured out now and don't need to go through the great tribulation. Because these individuals, these women, men, or people, they're going to go through the great tribulation. And many of them, if they do come to faith, they will be martyred. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ will be given. You can read that in Revelation uh, chapter 7. It speaks about how the gospel is going to continue to be given even during the great tribulation. People will get saved. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So they're hearing this, and they're like, where is this going to happen? When's this going to, you know, they, where? And how Jesus answered this is really revealing. Wherever the body is, right? Wherever there's corruption and death, there the eagles will be gathered together. Close with this. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. 
This is when we come back with Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19 describes after the wedding feast of the Lamb, we then come back on horses. We get to ride horses, man. I'm excited about that. And we get to come back. And I just want us to see what we read here in verse 17. Because there's going to be a great battle that happens. Right? And then Christ is going to reign for a thousand years. And then finally, there's going to be one more battle, one final battle. And then everybody else will be cast into the lake of fire that's rejected Jesus Christ. Even those in Hades will be coughed up and then sent to the lake of fire forever. But before that happens, there's going to be this battle, right? Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that they may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, and all those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, who deceived so many on the earth. Again, we're not here for this. This is during the latter three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, by which we desire, or sorry, this is before, yeah. This is towards the end of the last three and a half years, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. We could take, talk more about that another time. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds of the filled, uh, all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's describing what? That's describing the great tribulation and what's happening towards the end of that because Jesus Christ has come back, right? And as we just read here in the closing of chapter 17, when they said to him, where or how, you know, basically, where, Lord, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. It's a feast, and this is going to be at his second coming. So he describes the rapture, and then he describes his second coming right after that when they ask where. These are sobering things. Here's, here's the good news. If you're sitting here as a born-again believer in Christ this morning, you're not going to go through the Great Tribulation according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. And that's worth celebrating. You want to celebrate Father's Day? Begin with our Heavenly Father. Begin with our Heavenly Father. He deserves all the glory and honor and praise. Here's the second thing. If you're here this morning, or if you're hearing this on the radio, or you're watching this online, and you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe you're sitting next to somebody, maybe you brought somebody with you today, and you're thinking, what am I doing? This guy just took me through a marathon of the Bible. Felt more like a sprint, but a marathon as we took a survey through Scripture. There is so much God wants to communicate with you about his love for you and his desire to spend eternity with you. And that's the same thing he wants to speak to all of you here this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, truly know him as your Lord and Savior. Not just looking for fire insurance, not just doing it because mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or somebody else in your family, but truly love the Lord and want to know him and want a lifelong relationship with him. Today is the day of salvation. The cool thing is there's no pattern there's no special, you know, you don't have to tap your tummy and tap your head. I'm not making light of it. I'm making a fact that it's not works-based. It begins by humbling your heart, seeking a cleansing 
just as those lepers did, coming to the Lord for repentance, receiving the repentance he wants to give you right now. He'll forgive you for all of your sin, no matter what you've ever done. He'll separate as far as the east is from the west. He will justify you. He will put you in right relationship with God our Father, your Father. And for the rest of your life, you will be saved from the great tribulation, but more importantly, you will get to experience the greatest love that any human being can ever receive. And that is from his creator who made him, who made her, who has loved her or him from the very beginning. They knit them or you in their mother's womb and has always desired for you to be with him for all of eternity. That is his plan. We read about God's plan today. That is his purpose. And that's what he desires, not only for the bride of Christ, the discipling, but for a lost and dying world. If that's you today, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Call the church. Let us get you a Bible. Let us come alongside you. We love you.